Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Good morning. This is Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Brad Ferlin, uh, your Monday host, and we are in historic Waterbury, Vermont. Came from St. Albans Town this morning. Got the sheep fed, got the Norwegian elk hounds out of the house in early morning. They're in a shedding phase right now. I could build two more dogs with all the fur that's in the house right now. So uh, it's a little bit of a challenge. Headed over to Waterbury, coming through Burlington. It goes into that slow mode on the interstate where cars are getting off to Burlington area and looks like an accident and then my anxiety level goes up a little bit because I know that you have to get to the radio station on time for a show, uh, especially when it's live. So we have a great show this morning. I'm really excited. Uh, we will be getting with uh, Danielle Devlin, who is with Canis Major Music, and she is uh, a promoter of music and she is bringing Karen Casey, renowned Irish folk singer to Vermont uh, and around the United States. At 10 o'clock, we have author Lloyd Devereaux Richards, who wrote this uh, novel, Stone Maidens, many years ago. Uh, didn't do so well in sales. And then his daughter, Marguerite, does a uh, short TikTok promotion. And his book is at the bestseller list, and they are... Um, renown around the world right now. It's just um, taken off. And we'll finish the uh, the show today with Matt Coda. Uh, he's going to bring us up to speed on um, things in Montpelier. He does government affairs and trade association management, and he's a well-respected uh, Montpelier figure. So I want to welcome to the show uh, Danielle uh when I first, um, in, in the background of this is I was looking for things to do this winter and I found tickets up at the Highlands Art Center, um, for this musician, Karen Casey, uh, Irish folk singer. It was really amazing, um, in little Greensboro, Vermont. And then I was trying to figure out, um, if we possibly get, um, Karen on the show and I looked for who her, who her, um, promoter is. And it's, uh, Danielle Devlin. And I, I look, where is Danielle live? And I'm in Franklin County and I see Sheldon, Vermont. <laughs> so, so welcome Danielle. Uh, Sheldon, Vermont, the highest structure in Sheldon is a, is a grain, uh, elevator probably. <laughs> <laughs> I don't disagree. <laughs> so welcome to the show. It's great Thank to have you, you here. Thank you, Brad. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, so um, you get to operate a business um, out of your home, essentially, mm-hmm. um, meaning working there, but also you do a lot of global traveling as well. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, Canis Major Music and, and sort of how you got into that? Sure. Uh, well, Canis Major Music represents about 25 artists from around the world, touring them in the U.S. and Canada. 
Um, and I sort of came into this because of my love of music and traditional dance and my connections with different musicians, um, mostly from Canadian markets. And, um, you know, I've always loved music and dance. And somehow this became a natural progression from me at the time working as a pastry chef, believe it or not. <laughs> Many hats, yeah, right? Exactly, exactly. But being an agent, I feel like all of my past um, careers have really set me up to be um, really well suited for this kind of work. I work independently, all hours, very much a um, sort of customer focused position, both with the presenters that you work with in booking the shows, as well as the artists that you work with, you know, time management, project management, all of those skills, communication all come into play as an agent and artist manager. And you also are a performer, right, um, with Scottish Highland dancing? Yeah, so I guess I wouldn't necessarily have said performer, but I guess it basically is. Um, I, uh, or I was a competitive Highland dancer before the pandemic. I haven't gotten back into it um, because mainly um, my – well, it was really hard for me to wear a mask and do Scottish Highland. Uh, it's an incredibly athletic form of dance, um, but that did start to become an opportunity about a year or so into the pandemic. And then um, I also am a step dancer. And so my Scottish Highland teacher has actually moved from Vermont. She used to teach in Waterbury um, and now lives in Albuquerque. And so I actually haven't gotten back into it since, but I'm starting to look into maybe joining the um, adult level Highland dancers in the Montreal area is my maybe next foray to get back into it competitively. Yeah, amazing. And, and how did that get sparked? It's not sort of a um, shoot a few hoops of basketball kind of thing, right? No, it's not. You know, like I remember as a kid wanting to take dance classes and like go – my. Mother took me to a ballet class. I remember to watch at one point. And I remember my family members, you know, maybe not fault them for this, but maybe I do, um, saying, oh, well, you know, if you wanted to be a dancer, you, you know, you can barely eat and you can only eat yogurt. And, you know, sort of it was really sort of frowned upon my interest in dance and that it had to be a specific way. Um, and so I think my confidence in my ability to pursue dance was always kind of put down when I was younger. And then it sort of, my interests in Celtic-rooted forms of music grew organically just out of my own discovery process, nothing from within my family. And I, um, you know, because of that, started to seek performance of Celtic-rooted forms of music. And with that, some of those traditions naturally included dance, step dance as part of those traditions. Um, and so as I sought out looking for a step dance instructor, that's actually how I happened upon um, Scottish Highland dance because there was a workshop once that I took with who ended up being my Scottish Highland instructor. Um, there was a workshop that she hosted with a guest um, teacher for step dancing as part of a festival that she would put on every January. 
And that was sort of how I then discovered Scottish Highland. My husband comes from Scottish roots and, you know, we were actually already at that point going to Scottish festivals. So I knew a bit about the dance, which is competitively held at the Scottish games, including like Lude Mountain and Queechy. Vermont also always had a very long tradition of uh, presenting Scottish Highland games. And so that's sort of how I fell into it. And then, um, you know, as I really tried hard to explore step dancing, because that's what I love. It's the improvisation and the link, the intrinsic link to music with step dance versus Highland, which is, um, you know, you're not going to sort of go out on stage, spur the moment and do a fling to a tune at a session, for example. I mean, you might. I might because I'm kind of crazy enough that I might. Um, but step dance is really something that's like the percussive element of the music in addition to it being a you know beautiful visual performance. Um, and it was through that tradition that I then um, started taking workshops at different festivals, mostly up in Canada, mostly in Quebec. And I sort of got connected to that whole scene. And that actually led me to start dancing on stage with some performers. Um, and um, that's sort of how I actually fell into agenting was through that connection with a particular band. It's pretty amazing how our journeys go, whether we, we know where they're headed or not, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I never, ever would have guessed that I would have, you know, at the time been working for what was my absolute favorite band in the world at the time. Um, and it was an honor and a pleasure. Yeah. So um, the step dancing, can you um, help our listeners and me a little bit more with that? Um, I think I, yeah, I sort of know, but I I don't know if I know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, that's actually a really good question and one I'm happy to answer because so often when people see me step dance on stage, they think that it's Irish hard shoe. They think that it's Irish dance because that's really the only popular exposure to that kind of dance. Uh, But it's not at all what I do. I do do some Shannos, which is the old school Irish, which uh, led to what people see in river dance, but it's far different. Really, what I do is mostly Cape Breton step dance and Scottish step dance. So it's a percussive dance element. You could definitely look to Irish hard shoe for a little bit of a visual understanding. Um, However, I would say that it's, you know, with Irish hard shoe, it's very formulative um, and prescribed. And it's also very showy and pageanty. Whereas the Shano style and the Scottish style, it's integrated to the music. It's improvised. There's, you know, a vocabulary that you learn and you just pull from that as you dance at a session. So it's a little bit softer of a sound. It's not that really hard clomp of a hard shoe of Irish. Um, And it's a little bit more flowy. And um, I mean, for me, it's just bliss to dance to live music, whether it's at a session or on stage. And people that might know me, um, you know, when I dance on stage, it's evident that it's coming from a place of pure joy and not of a place of performance. Um, because it's just you all of a sudden become an instrument and you're communicating with the other musicians on stage at that point. And it's, it's bliss. Yeah. We can feel the passion and I'm assuming athletic as well. We are talking with, uh, Danielle Devlin, who is an agent and manager of music and a performer herself of traditional dance and music. Um, you talked a little bit about the, um, Celtic, um, if I pronounce that right, um, but also French-rooted forms. So where do you go with that? 
so where I live, I'm really only an hour and a half from Montreal, and there's an incredibly vibrant traditional music scene for Québécois music. So that would be basically the combination of Irish and French-rooted forms um, and their own sort of Celtic um, version of that, which is incredibly alive um, throughout different regions in Quebec with each of the... Like, there's several regions within Quebec that have very strong, unique uh, versions of their traditional music forms, and it's incredibly lovely. But what sort of has happened is that there's a really strong support culturally within Quebec for preserving uh, all of those musical and dance forms and promoting uh, that within, um, you know, sort of all of these cultural centers that they have throughout the region, as well as the festivals. Um, and so I just sort of naturally migrated to uh, sort of becoming involved in all of those and just found my bliss, found my community that way. Um, in fact, I might be going up there this evening to go to a session. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> um, it's just the sort of French-rooted forms. It's more about the songs, um, and there's sort of a, uh, you know, forgive the term joie de vivre in the way that they have adapted sort of some of the Irish reels and jigs um, into their own. They sort of took it upon themselves, changed it a little bit. It's got more swing. It's just got more vibrancy overall, I would say, for me personally, um, where I'm just somehow the energy is different. I'm just really drawn into it. And there's also their own step dance um, sort of forum there as well, which I find really challenging. It requires a looser ankle that I just don't have. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's it's pretty amazing, though, the symmetry between the two, right? The the Irish and the French. Yes. And I'm I'm also reminded um, the there is a uh, he's deceased now, but a really wonderful Vermont writer, Howard Frank Mosier, who captured a lot of the um, French Canadian Quebecois and the you know the the young youngsters learning the fiddle right or the exactly. violin. Yeah. And then being able to do it, and it was just it happened, and it was in their blood, and and yeah, I think that's very similar to you know the Irish transmission of folk and trad. It's very similar in Quebec, and that it's um, a family celebration. It's also in Quebec very much connected to the winter holidays, to um, this sort of season of fête, and um, so if you go to Quebec in you know November, December, you have far more opportunities to actually participate in hearing uh, you know, traditional Celtic or Celtic music uh, from the region, traditional Quebecois music, and it's just lovely. Yeah. yeah. Burlington had a uh, French-Canadian population right on the lake um, in sort of a work area. It was the G industrial um, back in the day. And yeah, Winooski too, for sure. Right, yeah. exactly. Um, you'd go to the store, you'd, you'd see the, you'd hear the French accents and um, and now it's evolved into a whole bunch of new accents. And uh, um, so this is um, – so you you did this sort of universe takes you where it takes you kind of thing. And <laughs> you started meeting musicians and felt like maybe you could help them. It's, it's, it's really a um, – a marriage between a musician and a promoter, right? Yes. They, they need to be promoted and you need to promote. I'm the matchmaker. <laughs> yes. <Exactly. laughs> I'm the matchmaker. Okay. <laughs> um, and there's, there's a trust involved there, right? You, you have to develop a relationship. And I think when we talked offline earlier in the week, you'd, or last week, you told me that you have some symmetry to, 
to the principles of the musicians that you you work with. For sure. Yeah, for me, it's really important to uh, feel passionate about the music itself and really believe in what the artist is bringing to the world. Um, I also tend to lean into a roster that promotes uh, female-led bands or um, that musicians that really have important messages to say that I personally agree with, um, and as well as just loving the music itself. It's got to be something that I'm personally passionate about and really truly believe in because this is a really hard job that requires a lot of hours, a lot of travel, a lot of personal investment financially. And so if you're, you know, not doing it to, you know, really align with your own ethics um, and values, then it could potentially be kind of soul sucking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and I and I love it. I do love the work, and I'm incredibly honored and humbled to be working for the artists I do work for. Well, and you you have a lot on your repertoire, and people can find that uh, at your website um, if you want to talk about your website. It's uh, sure it's canismusic.com, and it's named after the Canis Major Dog Star constellation. So it's C A N I S uh, music.com. So I found you because I had bought tickets to a concert in Greensboro, Vermont, which is, you know, pretty rural Northeast Kingdom. They have the Highlands Center for the Arts up there, which is this wonderful facility. And lo and behold, um, Karen Casey, who we're going to um, ask to join um, shortly, uh, is playing in, in Putney and then up in, um, in Greensboro and you, you brought her to both venues and, and to many more after that. Um, so I had bought tickets, found you and, uh, the concert is, um, first of all, Thursday in Putney, right? Yeah. Thursday uh, in Putney. Yes. At Next Stage Arts. Next Stage Arts. And then if, People in northern Vermont are looking for a really wonderful experience. The Highland Centers for the Arts. It's going to be Karen Casey, who we're getting to in a minute. Um, she's playing there on Friday at 7 o'clock. You can find tickets at Highland Center for the Arts. Um, and it just, it's a perfect venue. Um, brings us into March, into the spirit of the Irish and, and all of that. And And with that, I would like to welcome Karen Casey, to the show, and we don't even know where you are at the moment, Karen. Hi, Brad. I, I probably should say bonjour, Brad. Um, <laughs> Danielle. <laughs> How <are> you going? <laughs> bonjour. That, that was a fascinating chat there. Good. Um, yeah. So I'm here. I'm in Heathrow, actually. I'm just after getting through security. Oh, so I'm, I'm en route, <laughs> en route to the States. Is there yeah. any special privileges going through security, or, or do you no. sing to them, or how does that work? <laughs> Absolutely not. It's not like the old days where you could sing Danny Boy. <laughs> I used to do that when I got Have all the agents crying, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, we welcome you to the show, and, and we are so excited here in Vermont that you are, you are going to be in a couple of venues. You're in... You're, on the southern end of Vermont and you're on the northern end of the Vermont and for your travel ease just to know you can do anything in Vermont in three hours. <laughs> so it won't be like yeah, traveling across Ireland. <laughs> exactly. Um yeah, I'm thrilled to be coming over. I can't wait to get there. So I should be there this evening and I'm really looking forward to going up to Vermont 
which I love. Beautiful. <laughs> and the more rural, the better, is the way I feel. Um, you know, it's really nice being out the countryside. I grew up in the country, so I feel at home out I, the countryside. I saw that you did, and... Um I probably cannot even pronounce um, Ballyduff mm-hmm. Lower Kilmaiden right. yeah. County, yeah. Waterford mm-hmm. Island. You yeah. must have a long um, business card. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, uh, yeah, we've just introduced postal codes actually into Ireland. So, but yeah, that's right. That's perfect. Yeah, and and that's a rural a rural town, a farm community, or or what? What is your hometown? It's pretty small, like n- no shops, one school, one church, no pubs, unusually for an Irish village. Wow. But a few sort of in the five-mile radius. Uh, but pretty small, maybe like, uh, oh, God, I mean, maybe like a 1,000 people, 1,500? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, pretty small. So you, um some point early on, you learned that you had a, a gift. And we talk on this show a lot about how it's so wonderful when people find their gift, find their soul kind of thing. And it looks like you um, sang in the house, which a lot of people do start that way, church choir, school. Um, what, what, yeah. was the, what was the early passion for you? Um, well, I suppose I was blessed, really, um, to be able to do what I love the most. My two grannies were great singers, and they went from when I was very small, like two or three days, to stand me up on a table, and I'd hold on to the curtain rail and sing for them, and they would sit in the middle of the room and applaud. It doesn't get <laughs> so, better than that, right? <laughs> it's a dangerous thing to teach your small child. <laughs> um, well, the Highland so, Arts Center is pretty geriatric, so you may have a little flashback there. (laughs) (laughs) I'll fit right in. Yeah, and so my dad is a fantastic singer, my uncles, my mom loved singing, and I suppose we had a lot of parties at home, and we just, you had to have a party piece, you had to have a poem, or you had to have a song, or a dance, something, and... We, yeah, and I suppose I was also very lucky with a lot of the teachers I had in primary and secondary school were into music and taught us songs. You know, it was kind of a thing. I, uh, one of my first class teacher, Mrs. Foran, who has 10 children, um, taught the whole village how to swim and has a massive garden. You think she wouldn't have time to also teach it how to sing. But she was an amazing influence. And we kind of used to go to her house and she would bake biscuits, which is why I think we were there. Yeah, of and course. And we would learn songs without really knowing that we were learning. You know, we were just singing. She was an incredible uh, force in, in, in Ballyduff. So, yeah, so I've been very lucky. Yeah, it sounds great. We're, we're talking with Karen Casey, who is an Irish singer, songwriter, and... Uh, the, the woman who is promoting her, Danielle Devlin. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back for more of the discussion. Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. 
If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. Good morning. This is Brad Furlan, Vermont Viewpoint. I'm your Monday host. We have a great show today. We're talking with Danielle Devlin, who's a promoter of music, a uh, performer herself in, uh, in, in her own right, a baker, and a lot of other things. <laughs> a traveler. She's maybe going to Montreal tonight after coming to Waterbury today. Uh, we're talking with Karen Casey, who is an Irish singer, songwriter, um, and, you know, internationally known. Uh, I had mentioned to a few of my friends that, um, that you would be on the show today, um, Karen, and we're going to listen to a little bit of your music and then I'll get back to that. Song, and this is from the title track of a new um, album that's out, I believe. And, and and the name of this song is Nine Apples of Gold, which is the title track for the album that was just released last week. Wow, Nine Apples of Gold! If you're looking for music to fall in love with, and you you want to <laughs> romance someone, I think this will do it, Karen. Oh, thank you, thanks so much. Yeah, I'm very excited. Like I. You know, I'm really pleased with the album. I'm delighted it's out, and there's been a great response, and I can't wait to just sing the songs. I'm all thrilled uh, to be able to bring these songs to people. Yeah, and and you may know through Danielle that um, the reason that I was able to find you was through Danielle, but also I had bought tickets originally um, for your performance in um, at the Highlands Arts Center. So I was very excited about that, mm-hmm. and I'm very excited to be there on Friday to to see you and hear you live. Uh, last night, I had told a few people that I was interviewing you today, and I got a call last night late, and one of my neighbors goes, I was just driving home, and I heard Karen Casey on uh, National Public Radio. <laughs> so... They, <laughs> There, you're you're well known here already. Obviously, oh, good. thank you, thank you. Yes, I mean I've had a long relationship with America. You know, um, I used to live in the states in from '93 to 2000, and then I've really been over and back an awful lot the past 20 years. So I love going, and I, you know, I have a few close friends, and yeah, so. Uh, 
you know, I, I kind of feel like I grew into myself in the States, particularly when I lived in New York. I was kind of allowed to become the woman I wanted to become, you know. Um, so, yeah, I have a real fondness. You know, the way when you go back to your formative years, how, how uh, foundational that is. Yeah, um, and I have, uh, Danielle can tell you that I have in front of me like pages and pages of your music, your, um, accomplishments. It, it's just, it's mind boggling. It would take us a week to sort of travel through all the things you've done. Um, and you, it's, you're making some transition in your music too that, that I understand, um, from, you've, probably always been um, a, a storyteller in your music, but uh, Danielle uses the term performative social justice. Um, so is that oh, part of the evolution? Nice. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Danielle. Yeah, I mean, I suppose, to be honest, I've always uh, been trying to do that, <laughs> performance of social justice. I mean, in a way, that's what folk singers, to me, are. You know, many folk singers... Uh, that I looked up to, Mary Black or Christy Moore or Andy Irvine here in Ireland or Nina Simone um, or Judy Collins, uh, to, I suppose to a lesser extent Bob Dylan. But um, I've always looked, that's kind of what I saw folk singing as doing was, well, I suppose holding out ideas in the form of a song and putting it into a room and then allowing people to come to these ideas, maybe in a more gentle fashion. Um, and hopefully it means that people, if we can build trust and love in the room, singing, you know, I'm a firm believer of singing, bringing us all together. It's actually scientifically proven that it does bring us together. Then that hopefully outside of that room, we'll be able to do the same thing, or at least have had that experience of us. Um, yeah, so I've kind of always sung about social justice issues that were pertinent to my life at the time, but they've stayed pretty pretty consistent, I suppose, um, as part of my repertoire. Uh, anti-war songs, anti-violence, pro-women, and uh, I do actually do quite a lot of immigration songs, which is what Irish traditional songs are. are uh, there's a lot of them in there to choose from. So um, I do a lot of those as well. It's really all love songs, though. All the songs are all love songs. (laughs) Well, it's it's a wonderful uh, blend. I'm reminded of um, Dick Gregory was um, a a comedian, a black comedian um, back in the day who had who would perform and and get the audience sort of intrigued by his humor, but then he'd, he'd, he was able to introduce the politics and the justice and, and that. And what I'm hearing from you is the same thing. You, you get to do really a lovely, uh, performance with your music and then, and then the lyrics will sort of come in, come in and burn into the soul of your audience too, right? Yeah, hopefully. I mean, you know, I've probably got a bit better at it. I mean, primarily I'm there as a singer and to be singing and loving the joy of music, you know, and it's really, I get an awful lot of energy out of singing, I'll be honest. At this point, you know, uh, I've been going quite a while, so I love the energy back from 
the audience and from singing. Uh, but yes, if 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 we can discuss things that make the world a better place, I'd be up for that. And it doesn't always work out, Brad. Not everybody agrees, but I suppose that's part of the the process. <laughs> well, it that's does okay seem too. it's something that is unfortunately gradual. And, and I mentioned to my daughter, I have a 13 year old daughter um, last mm-hmm. night that I was going to be talking to you this morning and that you were really an advocate for social justice and, and all of this. And, and my daughter goes, so you older white man's going to interview her on this topic. No. <laughs> she, she's my no. teacher. I'm here. Yes, to keep them in I check. know. I know. I'm like, I, I'm like my 16 year old. <laughs> yes. So, yes. Um, but I mean, in fairness, like, and you know, people, our age and ilk have always, uh, uh, not all of us, but some of us have been also progressive and, and, you know, doing good work. Yeah. Uh, so that, yeah. Yeah. And, and my, believe me, my 13 year old is a tremendous teacher and I, I love yes. to see yeah. the world through her eyes and, and get to that experience. Um, so yes. you work with Danielle. Um, she, uh, feels my sense is a kinship to you and, and to the people that she works with. And, and Danielle, maybe you can weigh in on that too. Oh, yeah. Um, well, I think in the position that I'm in as sort of a matchmaker uh, between artist and um, music presenter, um, it's a relationship of trust on both sides. Um, and one thing that, uh, as I mentioned, is really important to me is that I, you know, really passionately believe in the music of the artists that I'm promoting as well as um, just ensure that that relationship is a relationship of trust. And working with Karen has just been an outstanding experience. I'm incredibly humbled to be your agent. Um, you know, even just on the ride in here listening to Nine Apples of Gold, um, I cried twice because <laughs> I just like she just moves me. She's an incredible songwriter, incredibly important. And I feel like not even yet at the pinnacle of her career, like one thing that we you know, may not have time to talk about is actually the theatrical productions that she's uh, doing and has done, um, including I Walked Into My Head, uh, which was premiered last summer in Kilkenny. And um, it's incredibly powerful and moving and strikes a portrait of what it's like to be a woman uh, in contemporary times. Um, but I would let her to speak to that. But for me, that's incredible. Thank you. Yeah, um, it's... Sorry, I didn't mean to cut across you there, Danielle. Oh, no, 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 I was finished. <laughs> no. Yeah. But th- thank you. I mean, I, Danielle's been absolutely fantastic. I was at Folk Alliance there with her um, the week before last, or was it maybe it was two weeks ago, but in Kansas City. And, you know, she really is so gifted at bringing, as she says, the matchmaking or bringing people together. She's so genuine and I love bringing new ideas to Danielle because she's always very supportive and and also very open-minded, very broad-minded you know um, and which I love because I, I think that art is about being broad-minded. I think it's about opening up the imagination and one of the things that unlocks the imagination is 
is compassion and interest and enthusiasm. So I really like that about uh, Danielle. She's, and I think it's also without her, I don't know if I'd have, you know, I, I was spurred on to to do the album and um, encouraged by her uh, about the play and also just to tour a bit more um, in the States. So I'm really, really grateful to mm. you, Danielle. So we are going to take a short break. We're going to be back with Karen Casey, um, Irish singer, songwriter, and uh, Danielle Devlin, who um, is helping to promote her in the United States. We'll be right back. Good morning. It's Brad Furlan, your host for WDEV Vermont Viewpoint. We're listening to music um, by Karen Casey, songwriter, Irish singer, um, coming to uh, the U.S. She's on en route, as a matter of fact. I'm going to hear a little bit of her music. Karen Casey, uh, sister, I'm here for you. Powerful just there. And I know that you're, uh, in an airport and we appreciate that yes. you're, you're tuning in, um, by phone and on your way to, to, uh, Vermont. And, but yes. I don't, if, if we have time with you, I want to get back to, um, performative social justice or, or the things that you believe in social justice and music. Cause I think it's so important for our listeners to to hear about that passion part of your life. Yeah, uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Brad. Um, yeah, I suppose, uh, you know, I've always used music. Like I was saying there earlier, like I've been singing this song called King Shilling, which is, talks about this woman who's left uh, with two children uh, after her husband goes to war and he took the King Shilling um which was a phrase used to get men to go to war, really, because they had no money. They were often really poor. And so, you know, it's interesting in that way I bring this to um, audiences worldwide and always sing it, and then we always sing the chorus together. And I suppose my hope was that we would look at the negative and sides of war and the futility of it um, through the song, through the prism of a song. So that's, you know, and I do that on many 
many social justice issues, uh, immigration being a big one as well, that we our songs are dominated, I suppose, particularly the traditional music songs by colonialism and emigration when you're looking at the political traditional songs. So you'd be hard-pressed to find a traditional Irish singer who wasn't singing some sort of uh, uh, sort of some sort of song about emigration. Um, yeah, so I suppose I try and approach it that way uh, and try and have a, a gentle approach. Sometimes it's more po- polemic and more defiant and uh, you know, and that I, I thought there's a, a a mix of of emotions across uh, an emotional spectrum that I try and get to or tap into. We are talking with uh, Karen Casey, who is going to be in Putney, Vermont, on Thursday performing, and also in Greensboro. And you can get tickets to both venues. I think still. Uh, the Highland Center for the Arts is, uh, in, uh, Greensboro. And then, um, Danielle, the, uh, the venue in Putney is. Next Stage Arts. Next Stage Arts. Um, this is, uh, Vermonters, this is a gift out there that's coming to Vermont. Uh, this, especially in, uh, in, with all the cabin fever going on, this is the way that you can, uh, open your soul with something, um, very beautiful, this music. Um, so Karen, the, um, sister I'm here for you also speaks, I, I would guess to the fact that, you know, women with women, the power of that. Yeah. And the power of female relationships, you know, women talk uh, together and hold each other up. And, uh, you know, I, I, a, a big feature of this album is about women, talking quietly amongst each other, trying to sort things out, and then also move, shifting then to more of uh, a roar or a bellow into claiming the suffering that women uh, are, have gone through and are going through. So that is a, 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 lot of, a lot of the songs on the album are about that and about uh, how hope can be built and how we can campaign together and make the world a better place. You know, I, I was heavily involved in a campaign here in Ireland um, called Fair Play, and play is the Irish word for discussion. And we advocated for um, support and more respect and more access to the arts for women. And it's been, it's, it's actually a success story. We've, we've had a lot of uh, media help and um, we've had a lot of panel discussions, we've run a lot of gigs around the issue and we've also ran academic um, symposiums and conferences on it and the government, the Minister Catherine Martin of the Arts has initiated a, um, a fund where people can go and uh, it's called Safe to Create it's, uh, also um, a, a telephone line with counselling if something more uh, difficult happens and you can go and get legal counselling and uh, indeed counselling. So, you know, it's been a long struggle for Irish women to achieve uh, reproduction rights and equality. Um, and I, I suppose it's a beacon in a way. You know, it's ironic to me that 
Ireland is, you know, in a way further along in terms of women's rights and reproductive rights at the moment than America. When when I went to America first, America was the beacon for women's rights. So I suppose I'm saying that, though, to say that there is hope always and that things will get better uh, if we can channel our uh, frustrations into uh, political uh, involvement and into the arts and music. Well, we love your um, your leadership on this and uh, what, I mean, transforming uh, thinking in Ireland and hopefully you're you are not hopefully you are bringing this to the U.S. as well, and we're so grateful for that. I can say that I often have sort of a a quiet jealousy when I see two women talking, and then their tone goes down, so you you can't hear, and you know that it's it's so like deep, and 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 yeah. unfortunately, I don't I don't know if you know. We men get get we didn't get the memo early on on how to do that so much. Yeah, and I think it's a necessary thing, you know. For me, um, dialogue and talking is a gift and would be a gift for men too. And I I would hope that in talking about these issues, that we can pass that gift on to young boys and teach them that it's okay to talk, it's okay to feel vulnerable, you know okay to cry you know we're, we're still very much wrapped up in in not nurturing that side of um young men so it's a kind of an all all, all gender approach uh that is mindful um that men can be abused as well so you know we had a lot of very heart-rendering um conversations a lot we have a lot of male allies in fair play of course mm-hmm. but also just it's it's a much nuanced, complicated conversation that needs depth and kindness and compassion. Well, um, and we were willing to have it, I suppose. Yeah, I love that. And uh, we're we're running out of time, and I know that you've got to get through onto an airplane. Um, yes. Talking with Karen <laughs> Casey, Danielle Devlin, we so appreciate um, you being here today with us. And if you're looking to hear... Karen, you can um, see her in Putney this week on Thursday and in Greensboro on Friday. And I want to thank you both so much for coming on Vermont Viewpoint. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Brad. And thank you, Danielle. Karen, you're a gem. Thank you. This is Brad Furlan. I'm your host, Monday host, uh, Pat McDonald and Kevin Ellis are later in the week. I do Monday, um, WDEV Vermont Viewpoint. We just had a, uh, a lovely talk with, uh, Karen Casey and, uh, a, a musician who, um, changes, um, people's lives and, uh, it was just, um, great to have her on 
and Danielle Devlin, her, her manager, um, Karen is playing in Vermont, in Putney and in, uh, Greensboro on Thursday and Friday. So if you, if you want to hear some great Irish music, uh, go to the websites and you can still get tickets. My next guests are now, um, internationally renowned, um, which is sort of a new phenomena for them. I want to, um, welcome uh Marguerite Richards and her dad Lloyd Devereaux Richards uh Lloyd you are the author of Stone Maidens and this is this is like a fairy tale welcome to the show hi thanks <laughs> thank you Brad um it is like a fairy tale uh yeah, I'm still uh kind of in in the middle of it I think yeah, there there was a a movie back in the sixties called called If It's Tuesday It Must Be Belgium, and I I'm thinking that must be what it feels like to you because you've been everywhere in the last few weeks. Yes, uh, we had a, a wonderful uh, trip down to New York on the Today Show, but fortunately with technology, m- most of our um, our interviews and discussions have been uh, on Zoom or via the telephone, which I prefer. I, I, I don't really like leaving Vermont. Yeah. Uh, so I did see the uh, today's show it was wonderful um, and, and certainly uh, amazing experience, I imagine. I want to go back, though, um, back in you published a book in 2012 and uh, Stone Maidens. It took you a long time to write it. Um, what was the inspiration um, with the book and also in, in writing? Was writing, I know that you, you were an attorney and, and did legal work, but was writing a calling in your soul that so you were sort of had two worlds going on? Well, that's a, a good way to put it. Um, I used to write poetry when I was younger, Um Sometime in my early 40s, uh, I was pulling together um, memories, writing down memories of my childhood, and, and I, I developed uh, an, an idea that I wanted to pursue, uh, try to tell uh, a story that was longer than a one- or two-page poem, and I contacted a guy, this is while I was a lawyer at National Life, at Vermont College, uh, Chris Noel. And I worked with Chris for two years privately, learning uh, on the side all the aspects of writing that he could teach me, um, dialogue, uh, front and back story, pace. Um, and uh, I learned quite a bit from him. Um, and I was very eager to learn. I suppose I did get the book writing bite, uh, and it was uh, – it took hold, and I would write late at night, and I would get up early in the morning and on weekends, and uh, I just plugged away at it, making about every mistake I could possibly make trying to to write a book. And you were a dad as well, so it's not like there's uh, tons of time to to do all that. So you had you were multitasking um, as a parent. That's right. You know, it was in fits and starts, the book writing, and it changed course a lot. You know, I think part of any writer will, will, will probably say, you know, the initial idea for something, you know, the way I try to learn how to 
adjust the story to write it more effectively. That took years of part-time effort, and my uh, perspective would change over time. It's a curious thing, sitting down alone at a computer late at night writing. The things that happen uh, are not easily explained. It's a real discipline, um, and it sounds like you had the persistence because it's not easy. A lot of people want to be writers, but they don't they don't get to the finish line. Um, so you finally did publish a book um, back in 2012, um, and you were proud of it, I assume. Yeah, I was so pleased to uh, find an agent, first of all, after I finished writing the book. It took a long time to get an agent. They're very difficult to secure. In fact, I was rejected, I'd say, 95% just getting an agent who would represent me. And then one day in spring, eight months after I tried getting an agent, uh, I got a phone call from my current, my agent, my only agent, Elizabeth Weed in New York city. And I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe she liked my book. Mm. So, uh, Marguerite, uh, your dad writes a book. You were part of that journey. He he would disappear from time to time and be at his desk and working on that. So you knew about it. You knew when it was published. Um, and then it kind of sat for for many years. Um, can you bring us to what probably almost everybody in America might know by now? But tell tell us the story. Yeah. Um yeah, so I, as you said, watched how hard my dad worked on this book, and he always made me and my siblings feel like a priority. Uh, so that's incredible now that I'm an adult, knowing how that all works. Um, and over those 11 years when his book was unknown, essentially, uh, he continued to write, and he actually finished a sequel. And, it, like, I've, I've said this, and maybe other people have heard it, but I was just, you know— that was so incredible to me and and just inspiring and because uh, nobody was really reading his first book. So I wanted, you know, my hope in making that TikTok video was that it would, like, literally I thought if, a, if, a hundred, if 50 people had read his book, I would have been excited. I didn't have a number in my head, but I was just hoping, okay, maybe a few people will read his book. And... Um, I did that, and what happened was they first they they fell in love with my dad. I think it just became, you know, there was a face behind this unknown book, and they they got his energy right away because I could I read the comments. He's so sweet, he's so down to earth, and he's a hard worker. And I made that clear in the video because who writes for fourteen years and has no sales for eleven years and continues to write like that's a special person. And I think. The world caught that, that they just fell in love with him, honestly, Brad. And, um, we, I was not expecting any of this. So, but I, it honestly, it couldn't be a bigger honor to do this for my dad. Well, it's, it has been cited and it's true that this is really two stories. It's a, it's a story about how, an unknown book um, becomes discovered, but it's really the relationship between a father and a daughter, which is is equally or greater special um, in so many ways. So 
I'm sure that your dad is very proud of you. And and TikTok, um, Lloyd, was TikTok something you were a regular on? <laughs> uh, I never heard of it. Right. I don't have an account. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I did hear of it in the news, people talking about, uh, you know, about it, but I, I didn't really understand it. I was telling. I don't understand it yet. Right. I was telling Marguerite that when I was, um, I have a 13 year old daughter and I was, she was asking who was going to be on the show and I was showing her a little bit of the, um, the book cover and stuff. She goes, Oh, I know that. I know that. I saw that. And then she went back to her TikTok account. She had, um, whatever you do, I'm not so versed in TikTok either. Um, she had followed you and, uh, was Aww. knew all about it. So it you really did resonate with just this huge it appears younger audience. Is that right, Marguerite? Is it is it a, a younger audience? It is. And that's been the the coolest thing about all this. His he's uh it's 65 to 70% now 18 to 24 year olds following him and watching his videos and and all the way up till 65 plus, but a majority is this young pace, which is just incredible and so, so surprising in the most wonderful way. But we were definitely surprised to discover that. Well, it's remarkable. And um, I'm sure now that there are TikTok videos getting made across America with, with promotions of all sorts of things. Uh, Lloyd, I want to go back to um, your writing and the, you know, there are some famous lawyer writers out there. John Grisham comes to mind. I just finished actually two of his books that I was listening to. Um, were you inspired by, um, can you tell us who you were inspired by as writers as you, as you grew up and who helped in your formation? Yes, you've mentioned one, certainly. Uh, I read, I've read a number of his books. John Grisham is a, a wonderful writer and a great storyteller. Um, uh, I have to say Stephen King himself, uh, uh, I marvel at his ability, not only to tell a good story and develop great characters, but, but to get books out so rapidly. Uh, I'm not able to do <laughs> that uh, working as I am, um, but there are so many great writers, and I guess when I read, maybe a lot of people do this, uh, I read for both pleasure and to uh kind of there's a part of my brain that's sort of looking at how the author is um, developing the story. And so it's kind of fun doing that. It's sort of like a little um, a little game. It's like part of my brain is seeing what how well he's swiftly moving the story along. Uh, Lee Child, I, I have to say, he's, a, he's remarkable in that ability to very swiftly move a story along. Um, there are a number of others because I have written in this sort of thriller genre, uh, Stone Maidens is in, um, John Sanford, uh, um, Michael Connolly, uh, Dean Kuntz. Um, there, there's so many gifted, uh, superb writers in the mystery thriller genre. I feel very fortunate to be in this position. I really owe so much of it to my daughter here. Um, this phenomenon I don't understand. Um, TikTok, um, she certainly... Um, put me in a position that a lot of authors would envy. 
And in that regard, Brad, at some point, I would just like to briefly mention three Vermont authors that um, have written wonderful books and uh, have not yet, I don't think they've yet uh, seen the kind of success that they uh, should. Yeah. And, and who? Okay. Yeah, I'd love to hear the three. Yeah. Well, uh, the first I have is uh, Joseph Citro, and he's written a number of books. Um, uh, story. He, he wrote a recent one in 2018 called Cursed in New England, stories about curses, strange disappearances, and other eerie happenings in New England. Um, he's, he's very theatrical in his telling, um, and uh, he's, he's a wonderful author. The second author I'd like to mention is Eric Rickstead. Uh, wrote a book in 2018 called What Remains of Her. It's a thriller set in rural Vermont about a recluse who believes the young girl he's found in the woods is the reincarnation of his missing daughter. He's also a beautiful writer. Um, and the final book I'd like to mention by Richard McEwen, it's called State of Redemption. It came out uh, in 2021, and it, it's a thriller about two lives headed in opposite directions, with one thing in common, they both witnessed a murder, an event that happened 30 years ago in the parking lot of a small Vermont town. And I just have to say I am very grateful to everyone, my daughter especially, but everyone who has uh, been so kind and supportive of me um, in the last uh, recent period of time. Uh, it's just amazing. Well, um, nice plug for these three authors. I certainly have read, um, Joseph Citro. I don't know, um, Eric and Richard's work, but, um, certainly we'll take a look at that. You mentioned a transformation, um, in your, in your book in, in the, in Stone Maidens. When you began, did you have a, did you think that you had a start to finish kind of idea of, of where it was going and then, and then what happened with that? Well, that's an interesting point. Um, I definitely started with uh, an idea set in um, southern Indiana where I had gone to law school and where uh, during my time there, there were a number of unsolved um, killings of co-eds. Uh, southern Indiana, similar to Ohio and Tennessee and Kentucky and Illinois, have beautiful hardwood forests uh, and rolling hills, uh, very different from, you know, the mid-state Indianapolis, Columbus, Ohio, where if you drive long distance, you'll see flat farmland as far as you can see. But you go 65 miles south of Indianapolis, and you have these beautiful rolling forested hills of southern Indiana. And these unsolved crimes, uh, when I um, heard about them, Shortly thereafter, I took a job here in Vermont uh, working for uh, National Life as a lawyer. And that's where the kernel of the idea of writing a thriller inspired me. And But it did take a lot of turns, but it stuck uh, in terms of the location and the characters I created. It stayed in southern Indiana because that had such an impact on me. I lived there for eight years. And... Um, the story did evolve. Uh, I learned more about my characters as I wrote. And I have to say, uh, one thing that happened to me in New York, I met a, an agent, literary agent, who didn't take me on. 
but she gave me some very good advice and, uh, and, and suggested I read uh, a couple of people. Lawrence Wright, he's a pretty well-known journalist, did a lot of articles for the New Yorker magazine. And he helped me reading his book. He had he did an awful lot of research in the area, and I kind of don't want to give away what I'm talking about, the research, uh, because it's, it's kind of key to solving this thriller. Uh, but what I'm saying is, in writing a book, I did a lot of research to understand better what I was trying to write about, and that was helpful to me. And some writers would describe um, moments in time in their in their writing journey where something magic kind of happens, where the words are flowing um, seamlessly um, without even knowing where they're coming from. Did that happen to you in in, in your writing? I'll say sporadically. Um, I since I was a, a, a neophyte to this book writing business, really, I, I, I still am in a lot of ways. Um, I had to learn how to better, to, to better describe uh, a particular chapter that I was trying to convey. And I, I had help with, you need editorial help. You need somebody looking over your shoulder. And I worked with a wonderful woman from New York and it, it's, it's that uh, assistance that uh, is so important for a writer. I've often read the acknowledgments in books, and I'm sure you've looked at them too. You can see how many people the author of a book will give uh, praise to in his journey to completing the book, and that's true in my case too. So Marguerite, um, your dad publishes a book, 2012, uh, copies come home, You've known he's written. Did you a couple of things here? One, did you had you read any um, anything previous to the publication, or did this hardcover book show up on the desk and and then tell us about when you read it and, and how you felt? Yeah, I actually hadn't read it at all before he published, and if I'm being honest, I was afraid to. <laughs> I knew it was a thriller, and I loved my dad and I was so close to them and I was terrified that I was like oh my god is this going to be like really creepy and when it published I was I, I wanted to read it and I read it in a couple of days and it was so beautifully done not gory I was sort of afraid of gore or something I thought it was a masterpiece I was just blown away because I had not read any of it prior to it publishing so I was so impressed and I, I loved it, and I shared it with all my friends at the time, and they loved it. And they don't typically read thrillers either. So it's a really beautiful book. Well, I love that. And I also, um, congratulations to you both. Um, Marguerite, you put this on TikTok, and you did something that every uh, junior high school or high school <laughs> English teacher hopes will happen is somehow, um, you know, youth will get uh, interested in reading. And it sounds like the catalyst that you've created here is just remarkable. Are you are you getting that feedback? Uh, you talked about an, a younger audience. Um, what, what are you hearing on that? I'm so glad you asked that question, Brad, because so not to use too much TikTok lingo, but there are things called stitches and duets, which basically are these videos people are creating off of my debt to, to comment on my dad's video I made. And it's young people 
saying it's the first book they've read outside of school or it's the first book they've ever bought for themselves and they're reading it and they can't put it down and they're reading it in a sitting or in a weekend or, and that has been, uh, the best little side effect of all of their huge side effect, I should say, um, it, there's just been so many people, young people saying it's the first book they've read for pleasure and they loved it and they want to read his sequel. They want to keep reading. Well, you've changed millions of lives, presumably, because the, that's, I mean, the, the number of hits you had on this, on this video was just remarkable. Um, Lloyd, you, you talked, you traveled in your career. You, you were able to see some of the world and, you got a, a a beautiful novel out of it, yet um, I and the listeners are hearing really um, what I think is a fairly humble man who likes Montpelier and 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 being at home and 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 the Vermont life. Uh, that's right. Um, I don't know uh, whether well, I, I personally drive uh, the dirt roads sometimes with my dogs. To take pictures. I've been doing this now for a few years, and people seem to enjoy the pictures I post um, on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, I really like to just take pictures, and I just take them with a smartphone. Um, I don't have any fancy camera equipment, but I've gotten enjoyment from it. I guess um, I guess I, I have somewhat of an artist uh, eye in me. Um, I was raised by my grandmother, um, and she was an artist. And um, I'm grateful to her. I'm grateful uh, to be able to see the world uh, and see the beauty in the world. We uh, we have about a minute left. I, when I was coming from St. Albans this morning, the, the mist coming over the lake and the sun was just what you described. It was, you know, it was just so beautiful. And I got out of my car. I stopped my car with my two Norwegian elk hounds in it. And they wondered what I was doing, but I was taking a picture because these are the moments that we get in Vermont. Um, we're talking with Lloyd Devereaux Richards and uh, Marguerite Richards, the author of uh, a book that has gone through the charts, Stone Maidens. Uh, look for it. And I, I just want to thank you both so much for being on the show. Thank you, Brad. Thanks, Brad. This is great. All right. Good, good journey to you both. In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. Good morning. It's Brad Furlan. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV Radio. Uh, I remember the tests at school when the alarm went off and we were like little penguins uh, walking out of the building for a fire alarm. And uh, my daughter was telling me they had one recently and it was freezing out. And they went out and came in and then the alarm went off again and they went out again. And um, But all for safety and all good. 
We had been talking this morning with um, Danielle Devlin, who was is with Canis Major Music, and Karen Casey, um, Irish folk singer, internationally known. She's going to be in Vermont here on uh, Thursday and Friday, Putney on Thursday, and on Friday she'll be up in the Northeast Kingdom in Greensboro at the Highlands Art Center. You can still get tickets for that concert. It's an amazing gift, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna attend up in uh, in uh, Greensboro for that, and I can't wait. We talked with Lloyd Devereaux Richards, who is the author of Stone Maidens, and his daughter Marguerite did a 15 second TikTok promotion, and this book uh, Stone Maidens has um, become number one best selling book. So we've had some some good music, and um, there's good reading out there. Uh, we're going to go to Montpelier now with uh, our friend Matt Coda. Uh, welcome to the show, Matt. Hey, thanks, Brad, for having me. Appreciate yeah, that. so Matt, you, like most Vermonters, have lots of hats, and uh, you're finishing up um, a tenure on the South Burlington City Council. You have only days left, is that right? <laughs> <laughs> that's right, that's right. Town meeting will be done. I, you know, I moved to South Burlington about 10 years ago. I volunteered for the Development Review Board served as chair of that board, and then uh, ran once, lost by a whisker, ran again, and uh, served uh, for the last two years. It's been an honor and a privilege. I've enjoyed it very much, but I've I've started a new company, and, and that has really taken a lot of my time, and, and, I, and I regret that I can't continue to serve. Yeah, and I want to get to the new company bit, um, but I also want to – are there things over the – you went into this position. You hadn't been um, a city councilor, obviously. You're in – one of the largest cities in uh, Vermont, and did you have expectations of what you thought would occur versus um, the reality now, two years later? <laughs> That's a great question, Brad. Yeah, I, you know, I went into it thinking, uh, you know, there's a handful of things that I that I wanted to get done. As you, on the development review board, you you look at plans and land development regulations and zoning lines and and, and maps. And I thought, well, there's there's an opportunity here to, to clarify these things, to make it sure that if you own a piece of land, you you know whether or not what the rules of the road are, whether or not you can develop it. And if you're if you live next to next to a piece of land, you understand whether or not uh, development can happen there. Because we saw a lot of confusion when I, during my time on the development review board. So I went into it thinking that we could we could solve that or resolve that in some way. But it, in the end, I was on the losing end of the vote. In fact, the amount of land that we can develop for affordable housing in South Burlington has shrunk, and that was certainly a, a loss. Uh, but we did accomplish a lot of great things. Um, we, we built a new dog park. We were, continue to establish our world-class uh, walking and bike paths. Um, we've got a tremendous amount of open space and areas that are dedicated to ensuring people can get outside and enjoy our beautiful city. And we are building in our, our marketplace city center downtown. Um, so there are a lot of great things that have happened over the last uh, couple of years. Um, so I, I do, I do like that. Yeah. And, um, all councils are a math problem, right? So you're either in the majority or you're not in the majority. So you can't True. always get your way on things. I, I certainly recall as a little kid, um, driving to South Burlington to Old Farm Road to visit friends and there was hardly a house. Um, it was pretty farm. Farmy, and over the years, it has become the growth center of Vermont. And 
it seems like uh, South Burlington, and help me with this, is in this debate of what they want to be. Um, many think that they can no longer be a farm community, even though they desire it, and others think they should be. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a reason why we're now the second largest city, because we're next to the two largest employers in our region, UVM, University of Vermont, and the University of Vermont Medical Center. We've got two... Um, um, we've got three now really significant manufacturers. There's more than three, but the big ones that are DynaPower, OnLogic, and now Beta uh, in South City of South Burlington, all with excellent jobs, um, great companies, but their employees need a place to live. And and we're 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 at that point in South Burlington where the development, the land development regulations want to shrink the amount of land that can can turn into housing. And as a result, if we want to continue to grow, if Burlington wants to continue to be Burlington and South Burlington and Chittenden County area still wants to be the state's economic engine, we certainly need to solve our affordable housing crisis. And, and I'm afraid during my time, we have not done that. Right. So there, the European model of housing is often cited and so that people aren't traveling great distances. And South Burlington certainly is really fits that model in, in some respects that they, um, that you would build out housing and, and have the population centralized there as much as possible. But sounds like that's going to be a discussion that's going to continue past your South Burlington tenure on the council. Yeah. And one of the things South Burlington has done, which has been important and good is, is to create density in the city center. But those are largely apartments, one or two better apartments, which are, don't get me wrong, those are critically important for our housing uh, crisis. But, but so are uh, the missing middle, um, uh, duplexes, condos, and um, single-family carriage homes, areas that, that you can raise a family, and, and we can't all be just apartments. So that's one of the things that we'd, we'd hope to address. Um, we didn't as, as adequately as I wished, um, but it, it lives to, uh, to discuss another day. Well, and we'll look for the next year, see what happens. Um, listeners, I was a South Burlington grad, so I had, um, you know, the benefit, I would say, of, of going to South Burlington High School. So I, my heart is in the community a little bit. So um, I thank you for talking about all of that. And, Matt, I want to say that, you know, there are a lot of people in Montpelier who do lobbying and do, um, you know, influencing and, and the like. And you're really highly regarded in Montpelier um, for what you do and, and how you work with the legislature and, um, you know, the relationships that you've built. And I know that you've started a new company. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I started Meadow Hill last year with the purpose of working for nonprofit uh, trade associations. So lobbyists obviously do work for independent businesses, private businesses, industries. I work for just nonprofit trade associations that are in, uh, that are in business. So things like the oil, heat and propane providers, the heating and cooling contractors, the, the gasoline and convenience store owners, um, these types of uh, nonprofit trade associations, they don't always agree on path forward. They're often in competition and they, they need, they, but they all need representation. They'll need help running their associations to understand what the regulations are that impact their businesses, tax laws, and so forth. 
So that's the that's the the niche I found myself in. Also, the the Car Dealers Association. So what's the common thread with all these nonprofit, all these businesses that are part of these nonprofit trade associations? Well, most of them are small family-owned businesses where the name of the person in the front office is on the side of the building or on the truck that they're driving. And they're second, third generation. They live in the communities where they work. They attend the local churches, go to local stores. And I think that's of real value to Vermont. I think it's not unique to Vermont, but it is something special about our small towns. Um, so th- those are the companies that I work for and I'm, and I'm proud to work for. And uh, we've just come through, and maybe we haven't come through. I don't know how to say that, but uh, COVID has impacted um, all of these worlds. Um, so aside from Montpelier, what were what were some of the things that you were observing with these trade associations and how they had to maybe I don't I don't want to use the word struggle, but was that was that the case? Has there been a struggle uh, with the, with these associations that you've been working with? Well, certainly, uh, trade associations need a great way to communicate with their members, and and every member has a different. Every company that belongs to an association, like a chamber of commerce or a heating fuel uh, dealers association or heating and cooling contractors association or the auto dealers association, they all they all need um, help understanding what's coming down from the federal government, from the state government, from the different regulatory agencies that that have jurisdiction over them, and an ability to communicate in a cohesive and comprehensive way. Um, the path forward. So, you know, interesting, as we see the supply chain crisis that happened because of COVID, it it affected every company a little bit differently, no matter if you're selling bread or gasoline or or cars and, and how you, how you communicate that to your customers, how you deal with your supply chain issues. That's certainly some of the things that we saw during COVID and we continue to see, even though we're, we've, we've, we're out, out of the pandemic. The, uh, I don't want to miss Meadow Hill. I love the name. Uh, is there a background to that? Yeah, it's my uh, so my grandfather, my mom's father and mother, uh, moved to Vermont in the 1940s from Providence, Rhode Island. And Roland Aldrich just came back from World War II and didn't want to move to the big city. Didn't want to move back to the city in, in Providence and would prefer to live in the country, much like the land he traveled well fighting in Italy, and he found Hartley Hill in in Saxons River, Vermont, and decided to, to buy a, a crumbling old farmhouse and, and raise dairy cows, which he did with his wife and, and three daughters. And that's still the name of the farm. The farm is long gone. My, my grandfather and grandmother passed away. But the, uh, the name survives, and I'm proud to carry it on. Yeah, what a great honor. We're talking uh, now this morning with Matt Coda. Uh, Matt owns Meadow Hill. It's a um, a uh, consulting management um, firm. He's been doing government relations in Montpelier for many years. Um, Matt, we'll just start with the basics. We've got 150 House representatives um, from all over Vermont. Obviously, that's our representation. We have 30 senators. Uh, some counties a little more, some counties one. Um, and they all bring to the table, um, their own ideals and, um, hopefully their constituents ideals as well. And, uh, what are some of the things that we're seeing in, in 2023 that's really the, the hot items of Montpelier and, 
how it's going to impact Vermonters? Well, I think the biggest change, and I have been walking the halls of the State House for nearly 20 years now, the biggest change that I've seen in terms of enthusiasm for a specific topic this legislative session is affordable housing. I think everyone has a story. Everyone has either been in a situation where they are unable to um, to buy, purchase a new home in South Burlington, excuse me, in anywhere in, in, in Vermont because of uh, what we've seen. People move into the state, prices have gone up, and the ability to, to build um, because of the regulations, because of the costs, are extreme. So what we're seeing is is a focus on affordability of streamlining regulations to make it easier and less costly to build in Vermont. And I think that's a positive thing going forward. But every year since 2006, there has always been a focus on energy and climate. And we're seeing that. We're seeing that in the implementation of the Climate Council's action plan, in the implementation of the Global Warming Solutions Act, and various policies from the transportation bill to the budget adjustment to to specific um, issues that are are part of the ongoing effort to reduce consumption of fossil fuels, to increase the amount of electricity that we use for transportation and for heating, and to ensure that that energy source, that electricity, comes from a renewable resource. So that continues um, every session, and I suspect will for the next 10 years. So we, uh, Vermont has been the, um, petri dish of, uh, ideas for, um, many things. And sure. we are seeing this, um, I, I don't know all about the, um, there's a bill now, I guess S5 in the Senate that is talking right. about, uh, greenhouse gas reductions and all of this. What, what are, you know, we're a, we're a wood burning, kind of state historically and you know um we're a gas guzzler kind of state historically every time i drive somewhere there's a pickup truck driving in front of me 30 miles an hour looking out the window and looking at the landscape um is the transformation matching the constituency yeah no i mean that's that's a problem right so a couple things number one is 88% 88% of the cars that we sell in Vermont every year are not cars. They're trucks, they're SUVs, they're pickups, they're vans, they're CVs. So Vermonters absolutely prefer a four-wheel drive. They prefer off the ground. And right, the, the earliest adopters or the affordable electric cars are, are sedans. They're small cars. Now, eventually that will change. But then you've got the issue of the infrastructure and where the car charger is going to be built. And because... Because you need three-phase power, where you want to install a DC fast charger, then you've got you've got going to have those electric cars more easily, more readily available, more practical in more urban areas of the city in Chittenden County, for instance, in Washington County, but but less so in the more rural areas of Vermont. Let's also see we see that in our policies regarding uh, thermal emissions and, and heat. So, we, of course, we have uh, Vermont gas systems that's in Chittenden County, parts of Franklin County, parts of Addison County. But the rest of Vermont really depends on delivered liquid fuels, oil, kerosene, and propane. And that's the way it's been for 100 years. And I suspect it will be for 100 more. But there is an effort to electrify these older homes. It's, you know, to, to install electric heat in a new home with, with, with tight insulation, that can be done, and it is done. 
But to retrofit some of these old homes, to add a heat pump here or there, we're talking a twenty or $30,000 bill to just install the equipment. So there's this idea that that's, that's the path forward for everyone, that everyone should install electric heat and then pay the electric company rather than their fuel dealer, and that over the 20, 30 years, it will eventually be more affordable. But the reality is we've got an old housing stock with an aging population, and the idea that, that someone who's my parents' age is going to install electric heat in a 50-year-old home, it's not economical, it's not affordable, it's not practical. And But that's the way the policy is going, so much so that they've proposed through S5 legislation has that will be voted on Thursday in the state Senate, a policy that will require heating fuel dealers to collect from their customers money and then hand it over to contractors who install electric heat. So essentially, it's not, not a tax, it's not a carbon tax, but it acts like a carbon tax in that customers are going to be charged 70 cents a dollar more per gallon for heating oil, propane, and kerosene for the fuel dealer to be able to sell that product to them. And that money will go to a for-profit company for them to then attempt to sell um, electric heating equipment in in other homes. But it doesn't go to the home where you pay the higher cost. It goes to whoever has the $20,000 to buy electric heat. So someone who lives in a, in a, in a mobile home in, in Northfield, Vermont, could be paying an extra dollar a gallon for kerosene, and that money could go to a for-profit company in Shelburne to install electric heat in a 3,000-square-foot home. There's no affordability there. There's no equity there. It's a bad policy, and we certainly hope the state Senate uh, votes it down on Thursday. So I have a 150-year-old farmhouse that has gray squirrels occasionally um, in the walls that I hear moving through. They come down through the chimney somehow. I don't know how. Um, <laughs> this, well, you got you got to keep your fire going in order to keep yeah, Right, right. Uh, so... I would be directly impacted by this, obviously. Um, if it passes the Senate on Thursday, uh, is it then head over to the House and is, is adoption likely or do you have a sense of it? That's exactly right. So it was just to, to get into the politics of it. It's, it will likely pass the House, excuse me, pass the Senate on Thursday, then goes to the House. And as you know, elections have consequences and there is there is a firm supermajority of Democrats in the House, and this is a top priority for them. So we expect it will pass the House. There'll probably be some changes, and then it will go to the Committee of Conference. And, and if it doesn't change, I don't know, but I suspect the governor will veto it because it is a, it really harms rural communities by making heat unaffordable. So I suspect the governor vetoes it, and if he does, then it will go back to the Senate for an override. And, of course, as you know from American civics, you need a two-thirds majority to override a veto. So that means they're only going to need um, 20 votes uh, out of the 30 senators. So if 11 senators vote no on Thursday, well, that tells you that if the governor vetoes it and they vote the same way in May as they do in March, then the policy will fail. But if 20 more vote for it, then it doesn't matter what the governor does. It could still become law. So you mentioned you've been um, in the halls of the State House for 20 years or plus. Um, you know the ins and outs. What 
I mean, this this sounds like a uh, well. Let, let me say this: how do how do constituents? How do the people have an impact on this, or do they? Well, they do, and, and you know, and we've been messaging you know, the the large fossil fuel sellers like this bill. Um, the the smallest ones don't, and and so we've certainly been using that network, uh, encouraging customers to reach out to their state senator, call or their lawmaker, call eight zero two eight two eight twenty two twenty eight. Just say your name, where you live, and ask them to vote no on S five. We've been we've been putting, we've been uh, urging our uh, member companies that if they don't like this legislation, that they really ought to um, tell their customers about it because as so happens. It's a complicated and convoluted uh, a piece of legislation that's that's has partisans on both sides, and it's really difficult to to take a 50-page bill and and describe it in a in a couple of sentences. But we've done the best we can, and and so has the people that want it as well. And um, and it really will come down to a vote on Thursday um, if it makes it to the next stage. I suspect it will. I think it already has a majority that, of state senators that support it. But I'm not sure it has a supermajority, and I'm not sure it has the support of the governor. And I know for sure, for sure, that it does not have the support of the people. Well, we're down to less than a minute. I want to thank you, Matt, for coming on the show. We could talk about this a lot more. If you uh, have an interest, pro or con, on uh, on this energy bill, get a hold of your legislator. Get a hold of your senator and let them know how you feel one way or the other. Uh Good luck with with uh, the new company, Meadow Hill, and uh, thanks for everything you do in, in Montpelier, Matt. Thank you, Brad. Appreciate it.